Hey, everybody. How's everybody? Good? This feels like coming home for sure. So good. You guys have grown up so much over this last couple years. We launched out last October uh, in 2019 out of Park Hill, Neighbors Church. We planned a Neighbors Church. We were meeting out on the campus of SDSU. Uh, it was going absolutely swimmingly. And uh, then all of a sudden, one Monday, I get this weird email like, there's this strange virus thing, and we're going to have to shut down and not meet on the campus. And I thought, oh, okay. A couple weeks, we'll be good to go. <laughs> Seven months into Zoom, I was like, oh, Lord, please help us. And then uh, we were able to start regathering back in September, kind of Neighbors 2.0, practically really Neighbors 3.0 at this point, uh, at the park in Normal Heights. And then I developed a relationship with a pastor in South Park. So we're now meeting in South Park, and uh, we're just cruising, cruising for Jesus and having a great time. But I love you guys. This is family, like Aaliyah said. Uh, we are cut from the same cloth, taken from the same loaf. Evan and I go back to seminary days, dreaming about doing this together. And uh, for it to be happening is, it's really, it's an exquisite miracle. And so if you would, uh, let's pray. We're going to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Lord, thank you so much for the church, for Jesus, for unity, for the gospel, for grace, for the power of the Holy Spirit. We yield our souls to you now. We open our hands to you. We bring our minds before you that you would engage with us, change us, motivate us, animate us, and move us. May the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Churches throughout the land are gathering this morning to sing your praises, to partake of the meal, and we are one with them. They one with us. Remind us, as we remember Jesus, crucified and resurrected, that one day all the world will be harmonized under the reign of Christ. Empower us now and speak to us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Evan walked you guys through Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 on how the gathered church is to come around the bread and the cup, traditionally called the Lord's Supper or Communion. And in summary, the meal of Jesus is the centerpiece of the community. The sermon and the songs. We don't just tag communion on to the end of the sermon and the songs. Communion is the focal point of the gathered church. But what makes communion truly communion is not only the bread and the cup, the elements of Jesus' body and his blood. It's us together in union with the Holy Spirit, us together, a common union of God's community gathered around the table. And that's why I'm here this morning. I'm here because Evan emphasized the importance of the meal. I'm emphasizing the importance of those gathering around the meal. And I'm so, so grateful and excited about this particular session because it's a very intentional moment. This is an embodied expression of something so healthy and so beautiful and so powerful and so needed in our world today. It is literally us together, Neighbors Church, Park Hill Church, the family of Jesus in two different expressions, but operating as one. And so this is a literal declaration to our fractured world right now of a better way of being. We are declaring there's a truer way to be human. This is the way that God wants to heal the world through you and I. 
So what I want to do is just a brief overview of God's kind of overarching plan to use his community, his people, to bring healing to the world. And then we're going to deep dive the back half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be in verses 28 to 33. Sound good? All right, let's go. Broad overview. God created humanity to be a unified family. Humans, we were to go forth into creation and multiply harmony, just like a beautiful piece of music, just like a beautiful song sung by a choir. The individual notes of each personality, each individual were to go into the world and make something more expansive and more beautiful than the notes just played individually. We were to go out and cultivate art and culture and industry and technology and beauty in intimate, intertwined, interdependent partnership one with another. Satan, the snake in the grass, and sin splintered humanity as all of our ancestors chose for themselves what they believed would give them the good life instead of trusting God's wisdom and God's ways. And so what we have seen throughout the human experience, throughout history, and right up to our daily news feeds is the ongoing disharmony of every human doing what we think is right in our own eyes. God, though, has always been faithful to send prophets, mouthpieces, representatives, and leaders of his choosing to represent his will for humanity. There was Noah before the flood. There was Father Abraham, who had many sons. Many sons had, sorry. There was Moses in the wilderness. There was the nation of Israel itself. There was the lines of Hebrew kings from... Saul to Zedekiah. And yet every single one of these failed because they all succumbed to their own versions of the good life. And yet they were all pointing to the ultimate representative of God who would finally come, God among us in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. And so understand that Jesus's mission, it was so much more than just accomplishing our personal forgiveness as individuals, as important and beautiful as that is. Where humanity held ourselves over others, Jesus humbled himself to draw all unto himself. Where we tribalized and overpowered the other, Jesus loved his enemy and allowed himself to be overpowered to unify us. Where we hurt each other, Jesus absorbed the hurt to harmonize his followers in forgiveness and mercy and grace and love. And so St. Paul picked up on this grand theology and spoke to his little community in Ephesus saying that Jesus' mission was to, quote, create in himself one new humanity. We are that new humanity. Not just as individuals filled with the Holy Spirit, but we together in union with Jesus by the Spirit, we are the spearhead movement of God reharmonizing what has been in disharmony since the fall. We are the answer to Jesus Christ's prayers in John 17, where Jesus prayed, John 17, 20. I pray that all of them, that's us, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, this Trinitarian unity, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then 
the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Then the world will know. The world will know Jesus and his mission through our union. Now can you guys, with all of that, all of that vision and gravity in the background and in the foreground of our mind, can you, can you feel Paul's intense language all through the book of 1 Corinthians? This kind of, I don't know, frat party of a church in Corinth. They were off the hook crazy and divided over all sorts of different issues. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, particularly when Paul is rebuking the Corinthians, he's saying, your divided meetings are doing more damage than good as far as fulfilling the mission of God to heal the world. For communion to be truly communion, we actually have to be unified. Without harmony in the community of Jesus, humanity has nowhere to see or experience Jesus's mission and plan for healing the world. You guys feel that? Can you feel that? That weight, that gravity, that beauty. So what I want to do now is turn to 1 Corinthians. And the whole back half of this is just going to be a deep dive of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 to 33. Four concrete actions for us to actually live in unity, in union one with another. Four concrete actions for you note takers. Examine, discern, judge, and wait. We examine ourselves. We discern each other. We judge ourselves. We wait on each other. We examine, we discern, we judge, we wait. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Everyone, Paul says, as you come around the table, ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. When we self-examine, we turn inward and we look into our hearts we investigate, we explore, we look for sin, and we repent. And in our repentance, we inwardly receive personal forgiveness as individuals. And this is beautiful and needs to be occurring in every moment of communion. The call to self-examine that Paul was commanding the Corinthians to was actually to examine themselves in reference to the rest of the community around them. So it could be literally translated, test the genuineness of something. Paul was saying, test the genuineness of your heart in relationship to those around you at the Lord's meal. Now remember, the Corinthians, they had unexamined hearts, and their hearts proved terribly disingenuous towards one another. They were drinking the cup and eating the bread together, but their gatherings were marked by cult of personality, cliques, self-serving gluttony and drunkenness, all while others were going hungry and unseen. They had no awareness of nor concern for each other. They were pursuing their own versions of the good life. And they were in the same vicinity physically, but they were actually miles apart from each other spiritually. Can I just illustrate this with a brief story from my own life? Back in 2007, like a lifetime ago now, I was called, my wife and I and our family, to Seattle at the ripe old age of 30 to replant a church in the city. And upon my arrival, I inherited a community of people that were mostly 60-plus empty nesters. One of the elders that brought me to Seattle from Idaho was a man named Jim, Jim Cobb. Let me describe Jim for you. Jim was your quintessential Boeing engineer. He actually worked on high-end 
research developing lasers for nano measurements to fit into the wings of airplanes. All of his shirts, they all looked identical. I think he only had like one or two shirts and they looked exactly the same. And he actually had, I don't know if you guys know what these are. Jim actually had like legit like plastic pocket protectors and they were always full of pins and I never had a pin. I could always rely on Jim. I'd be like, hey Jim, you got a pin? He'd be like, here you go, here you go. He would just have a superfluous amount of pins coming out of his little pocket protector. Jim was, uh, he was very, very soft-spoken. And when Jim talked, at times there would be like these agonizingly long pauses. <laughs> and so for somebody like me in conversation where I just fill the space with as many words as I possibly can, every time Jim would go into one of his pauses, I'd be like, ooh, do I talk? Oh, ooh, there, he's talking again. Okay. <laughs> it was so, so awkward. Jim was actually, you know, if you can imagine like talking to your calculator, I think that's what it was like talking to Jim. Just try to have a conversation with your calculator. He was an intensive planner. He was extremely cautious and he was conservative in every way. And then there I was. I was loud, emotionally expressive. I was fast. I was shoot from the hip. And full confession, I was desperate for our church and for myself to look cool so all the hip Seattleite kids would come to our church and think that we were cool. And full disclosure, when I met Jim, I was like, this guy ain't going to like me. I probably won't like him. He won't fit. This just isn't going to work. We're way too different. And so we were actually externally elders of the same church, but inwardly I was divided in my heart from a brother based on these shallow worldly ideals. But let me tell you, I was in Seattle for almost 11 years. And over a decade, month by month, year by year, of all the ups and downs, the schisms, people leaving, all the endless meetings, the highs and the lows of replanting a church, Jim remained utterly faithful as an elder and totally loyal to me and my family, not only as a pastor, but as a friend. And it's truly today, it is an understatement for me to say that I grew to love him. I grew to love him and his wife. And so in the world, two men that would have never talked to each other in the church, God united us and made us one. Two completely different personalities that Satan and sin and society would say, that will never be harmonized, that should stay in disharmony, became a single song together. Jim and I, today, we are literally still the ultimate odd couple. I just got off the phone with him last week. I love him as the dearest friend. And when I take communion today, I literally find gratitude in my heart coming up saying, I am so grateful that God made me one with Jim. Because of him, I'm reminded to examine my heart. Who am I divided from right now by these shallow worldly things? And in churches like Park Hill, churches like Neighbors, we have to be careful. Very young churches. Are we divided in our hearts by looks, cultural preferences? age, cultural backgrounds? Is anything keeping us separated in heart from one another? Who are we in the room with, but divided from in heart? And so Paul, having commanded the people to examine their hearts inwardly, he then says, now turn your gaze outward, look around you and discern the body around you. Verse 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. We are to recognize those that are around us. 
We recognize the beauty and the complexity of the body of Christ, made up of all kinds of people that are very different from us, but joined together, each having equal value and each worthy of our complete and total respect. What I want you guys to understand is that the discernment of the body, the recognition of the body around us at the times of communion, it is both local and it is global. Let me explain. On the local level, we identify with the physical community that is gathering around us this morning. When the church rightly discerns the body, no one is actually left out. In churches like Neighbors and Park Hill, we actually dial in that kind of, that relational intensity that, that relational connectivity, we dial that in through our community groups. It's why you have a press every week, the front end during announcements, get into a community group. And in those community groups, we discern the needs of those that are closest to us. We recognize and look for those that are in need. And we also are looking for the strangers that need to be brought into that community. But it's not only local. We also recognize the global body of Jesus that is harmonized across neighborhoods and cities and states and nations and even the entire world. So during communion this morning, Park Hill discerns neighbors. And while Shua and the crew back at neighbors are singing songs, gathering around the table, we're to hold you, Park Hill, in our heart, an awareness of the actual unity across physical proximity. It's not only our city, though. We recognize that we come to the table this morning with innumerable people comprised of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that recognition, that moment of heart recognition globally, it dispels all of our differences as Christians. And it draws us out of our myopic, our very small kind of inward little world, and it points us towards the global intentions of God for us and for all of humanity. Right now, there are pastors in North Korean prisons who are shepherding their flocks through scriptures that they memorized when they were little kids. We honor them at communion. We pray for them during communion. Right now, there are women in Iran in full face covering going out into the streets of their city to lead these tiny little cells of disciples that are beginning to multiply across the Middle East like wildfire. We are tethered to those women by the Holy Spirit. Do you guys realize that because of our union with each other and with them in Jesus, we are more in harmony with that pastor in prison and that woman in Iran than we are our unbelieving friends who are sitting at brunch right now? Their sufferings are our sufferings. Their progress with the gospel is our progress. This is why the author of Hebrews was saying to his community, continue to remember those who are in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. We examine inwardly. We discern outwardly, locally and globally, this beautiful thing called the body of Jesus as we commune around the table with him. Third, we must rightly judge ourselves inwardly again. We must rightly judge ourselves. Verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, literally the wording there is, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not come under such judgment. 
Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. It is very strange for us as modern, enlightened, scientific thinkers to hear Paul say, hey, the way that you're treating communion and the way you're treating the body of believers during communion is making some of you physically sick and some of you are dying. (laughs) We're like, what? In the book of Acts, when Ananias and Sapphira sold some property and they came back to the community and kind of posed as if they had given more than what they had actually, they immediately died. (laughs) There was just an intensity of presence, I believe, in the first century community that we actually have a hard time just getting our heads around, literally. There's also a take on this passage. It's a bit counterintuitive. Track with me for just a moment. Paul could be referring to the people within the community who were already weak and sick and they were dying because of the neglect of the community. Because of the lack of recognition for one another, the weak and sick were being neglected and they were going on to die. So rather than the needy and the hungry being seen and provided for, they were being neglected, some to the point of death. And Paul says their deaths, their deaths, are God's corrective judgment on the whole community. His corrective discipline on the collective community. Again, we have a really hard time grasping God's corrective measures because we think so individualistically. It's kind of tit for tat. I do this, God does this to me. How can that have anything to do with somebody else? But the Bible thinks primarily in collective terms. So regardless, whether the people who were not examining their hearts were the ones getting sick and dying, or it was the neglected who were getting sicker and dying, you need to hear this. The same thing is still happening with the church today. It's just slower and much more subtle. Let me give you an example. Modern neuroscience is showing us what theologians have known for millennia, that the human body literally physically breaks down when we are in disharmony one with another. We are so wired for intimate contact with each other that when it is diminished or corrupted, our physical bodies begin to fall apart. This last year of upheaval and hostility across multiple fronts, it has had its wearing effect on the church. The wars of the world have crept into the communities of Jesus just as they did in the city of Corinth. And this has resulted in a subtle and not so subtle disharmony and division in the family of Jesus. And that disharmony makes our souls sick. It even affects our physical body's health. This happened to me back in October, very unintentionally. I was trying to be well-informed around the political conversation. I wanted to find the truth. And so what I did is I began listening to left podcasts and right podcasts. And then I'd listen to way left podcasts. And then I'd listen to way right podcasts. All in the name of I need to be informed somewhere in the middle is the truth. So I can go and tell everybody what's actually right in this moment. Over time, though, I just found myself getting more and more angry. I would like in podcast left and be like, blah, 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 blah. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to balance this out. I'm going to find the truth. I'd listen to podcast right, and I'd click off podcast right, and I would just find myself like, well, the volcano just getting hotter and hotter in my chest. And then I also began to realize that whenever I was in conversation with somebody, Christians that I love, brothers and sisters, rather than my first foot forward being listening and empathy, I was kind of looking at them with a suspicious eye. 
And I wasn't ever actually listening. Like if I ever got really quiet enough, I wasn't listening. I was actually just kind of running through my checklist of everything that they had just said wrong so that then I could tell them everything that they had just said wrong. Guys, I even began to feel, and I'm not an anxious guy. I'm not, I'm like, I'm not an anxious guy at all. And I began to feel anxiety, thinking about going to be with a group of people that I love. If the political conversation comes up, I'm going to feel the volcano starting to go off. And I would be like, ah, all of those hormones and emotions put us in a flight or fight system that debilitates our body. So my wife, who is beautiful and wise and good, is watching her husband being sucked into that world. And she helped me judge my heart rightly. (laughs) Eventually, she just flat out said to me one day, you have got to stop listening to those podcasts. You're not even acting like yourself anymore. I've never seen you this opinionated, this irritated, this anxious, this fast, this, you think you're so right. I've never seen you act like that. You need to stop. And so I heeded her counsel, and I did. I literally turned off all of the political podcasts, and I began to slowly heal. My anger and my anxiety levels began to decrease, and I realized oh, I'm actually listening to this person right now. I'm not just coming up with my list of how to argue with them. I'm actually trying to listen to them and empathize with them in conversations. Now, of course, this was for me. Most of you guys can handle listening to podcasts and not let it get you all riled up. But I personally, I had to abstain. And I want you guys to know, this doesn't mean that we don't have opinions. Everyone has opinions, millions of opinions. What the church needs to know about all of these opinions, though, is that our opinions have to be judged rightly in our hearts or our hearts are going to grow sick with mental and emotional health issues. If we don't judge our opinions rightly, we will divide with each other. We'll war with each other. We're going to make others in the family of Jesus sick by our relational behavior and posture towards them. It's very unconscious. And so in this extremely tense cultural moment, right now, here in the United States, it demands that we, the church, rightly judge our hearts towards one another. So I just want to ask you very clearly, if there is suspicion and anger in your heart right now, it's got you all riled up, ask yourself, what is causing that? Is it Jesus? Is it the kingdom of God? If there's fear, if there's anxiety going on in our souls, it's kind of breaking us down. How might we rightly judge that and turn our hearts to Jesus to more deeply trust him as he rules over all the chaos? To rightly judge our hearts is to deeply investigate. It's to uncover what's driving the anger and the anxiety and the emotions that are making us sick. And what I want you guys to know is God is not punishing us with those things. The physical and the emotional pains of our bodies, they are like lights on the dashboards of our soul, telling us something is off, something is wrong. We don't blame the car when the check engine light comes on. We judge rightly that the car needs the attention of the car mechanic community, and so we take it to the car mechanic community to get it fixed. Pioneering fields like interpersonal neurobiology, Kurt Thompson and other psychiatrists that are really on the front edge of this, 
They are showing that the simplest things in human interaction actually can have healing power. So when we're in a conversation and we're actively listening to the person in front of us with a posture of empathy, both individuals, the speaker and the listener, the literal neural chemistry changes from fight or flight to a place of rest and repair. An act as simple as looking at somebody smiling into their eyes, it literally lights up a whole series of mirror neurons in our brains that mitigate that fight and flight hormone and flood us with good healing hormones like oxytocin, the love hormone. Just a smile. Look at my smile. Don't you feel better already? It's incredible what God does with our bodies. The absolute truth of communion is that we come together in Jesus And Jesus looks into the eyes of our souls and he smiles upon us and he listens to us together and he hears us together and he makes us well. And when we gather around the bread and the cup together, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, which means we are not condemned, we are forgiven. We are not cast out, we belong. And we are proclaiming even through our imperfect union one with another that Jesus' death accomplished what the world needs. And so we close by waiting on one another. Examine your hearts inwardly. Discern and recognize outwardly. Judge rightly what's going on in the deeps, and then look outward again and wait on one another. Verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Paul's literal words, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Don't trample over one another, but wait on each other with hospitality and open hearts. Now, just think with me for just a moment about waiting on somebody else and what that requires. For those of you that are like the get there on time people and you're married to the person that's like, nah, get there on whatever time. What is it like for you to wait? (laughs) Waiting requires the sacrifice of your own personal time, right? Waiting literally reorients your personal agenda to fit the other person's agenda. Waiting in some measure disadvantages ourselves for the sake of the other. And so communion is a time to wait on the other, to disadvantage ourselves for the other. A helpful image of this is literal, literal waiters going to their job at a restaurant. Waiters go to serve the food, not to be served. They keep their eye out on the needs of the people around the tables. Good waiters are attentive and outwardly focused, and they're kind and they're hospitable. And so in that sense, communion creates a community of waiters who come together week by week to serve, to be sensitive to, to care for, to disadvantage ourselves for each other. That is the fruit of deep self-examination that is honest, That is the fruit of discerning in actuality and truth and transparency the body around us, and that is the fruit of rightly judging our opinions. Friends, I want to wrap this up. Neighbors in Park Hill and all the churches in San Diego and up and down the West Coast and across the United States, all around the world, we are multiple expressions of the singular family of Jesus The unique thing about Park Hill and Neighbors is like we are legit, legit family. One cut from the other. We are part of each other so deeply. And so as two churches, we are committed to this together, not only for our well-being and our personal souls, but for the sake of our city, for the sake of the world around us. 
As we come to song this morning, I do. I want to invite you with St. Paul. Test the genuineness of your heart in relationship to those around you. Go deep. Communion is not a time of condemnation or shame. It is a time to be raw and honest. I confessed to you that I was divided from my brother and heart because of the shallow thing of wanting to be cool in front of a bunch of Seattleites who could have actually cared less, to be honest. What they actually cared about, what drew them to Jesus, was a Boeing engineer and a stoner saved by Jesus brought together to made, made one. That's what, that's what brought people to Jesus. Examine the hearts. Discern. Discern the people around you. When you take communion, hold in your awareness each other and then this greater body of Jesus. Think about the suffering saints right now and all through the ages that we are tethered to and one with. Learn to see your brother and sister not as a political opponent, not as somebody whose cultural preferences you don't understand, not as somebody who doesn't think like you, talk like you, act like you, but is one with you. Disadvantage yourself for the person next to you. The church's message is so opposite of the world. And it's in this way, when we do these things Sunday by Sunday within our community groups in our homes, in, in these incremental like millimeters, nano, nanometers as Jim would call them, <laughs> we bring a little more harmony into all the disharmony in this world. And the truth is, creation and salvation, the salvation of this world, that song will go on. Nothing will stop that song from being sung. But in this life, you and I have opportunity to contribute our part, no matter whether we think we're on pitch or not. We have our opportunity to add our little piece to the eternal anthem of praise. You and I together, Park Hill and neighbors together, this is a singular note in an eternal anthem of harmony for humanity and the weight of responsibility, it is on us. And the spirit has been given to us and the Christ of communion, he is present at the table this morning. And he invites us, come and eat and be filled. Come and drink and be satisfied. Come and sing and be made well. Evan, you guys can come on up. And I just want to pray for us this morning. Father, as we bow our hearts before you, open us. May confession, honest, raw, real confession, where we have tribalized, bought the lies of a world in conflict with itself, where we have overpowered, demanded, forced, fought our way. Today, may we just come before Jesus as one. Jesus who humbled himself. Jesus who became weak, Jesus who disadvantaged himself, let go of his rights to unite us as a people, indwelt by him, filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for Park Hill. I pray for neighbors. I pray that we would be a people of such rich diversity, rich and poor, black and white, Mexican, Asian, every tribe, tongue, and nation, age, that the old would spend time with the young, that the young would respect the old, 
that every little tribal group that makes up our cliques, every cult of personality would be diminished in these gatherings. God, I pray that you would help us to believe. As small as it may be in measure, that this moment around the table is the answer to the hurt of the world. It is the answer. It is the solution. It is the means by which God is reharmonizing humanity to be a unified family, singing his praises, each of us with our infinitesimally small part, adding to that eternal anthem of glory to God. Forgive us for not giving weight and worth to the communion table and one unto another. We are sorry, and we turn our attention to you and to each other to wait on each other, to serve each other. Spirit, come. Wisdom, come. Holiness, come. And may these moments of declaration draw in the war-torn and the wounded of our world that they might experience the voice of the Good Shepherd, kind and gentle and wise, purpose-filled and beautiful, compassionate, whose attention never leaves us. Strengthen us in these days, Father. Strengthen your church. We worship and love and abandon ourselves to your mercy. All for the glory of Jesus' name. All to honor him. And all of God's people said, amen.